If you've ever been surprised by your own thoughts, well, you're not alone. From the time we're born to the time we die, we spend our lives meeting strangers, including the one within. We also spend our lives learning about many of those strangers and turning them into colleagues, friends, and family. In this podcast, host Charlie Bressler talks with fascinating people on their musings about family, community, work, helping others, and getting to know the stranger inside ourselves. Where do we fit in the world we all inhabit together? Charlie Bressler, the co-founder of The Life You Can Save and former president of a large international retail company, investigates ideas that he has been musing on since he obtained his PhD in clinical and social psychology way back in 1984. As you'll hear in our musings together, guest Elaine Wynn really puts her thumb on an important point. When the problems facing us feel overwhelming and dire, hopelessness can lead to a total lack of communication and cooperation among our politicians, but also among the rest of us who can't seem to find common ground to work from. There are people in the world whose money and status can protect them from nearly anything, and Elaine Wynn is in that rarefied circle. A billionaire businesswoman, philanthropist, and art collector, Elaine and former husband Steve Wynn co-founded the Mirage and Wynn Resorts in Las Vegas and around the world. Despite her good fortune and privilege, which he readily acknowledges, her adult life has been focused on helping fight injustice for those who have less privilege and no voice. She's also a tireless and passionate advocate and supporter of a holistic approach to child welfare. Elaine is also committed to supporting the performing and visual arts, most notably through her work and financial support for the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. If you, like all of us, occasionally feel overwhelmed, helpless and hopeless, I hope you'll listen to this conversation as we muse on waves to make the world more equitable for all. Welcome, Elaine. It's so great to have you to muse with today. That's the title of the podcast is Musing, and I think we should, and we will wander into different areas as you wish, and I will be asking you some questions that might get us musing in different areas. I'm particularly interested in your role in education support and also your work as a philanthropist. And I also think the audience will love to hear about your business career, which apparently was pretty stellar also. But let me start by asking you to share your personal story in some depth. But I, by personal, I mean just what you've done with your life and et cetera. So please go ahead. Thank you, and hello, and how lovely to have this very gracious invitation. I'm delighted to be with you to start off before we even get into subject matter. As a rule, I don't do lots of podcasts these days, and it's not that I'm unwilling. It's just that not many of them have appealed to me in the way that your invitation did. Well, that's great to hear. I'm very happy to share with you some of my history. I would say that I was raised in a somewhat typical middle-class Jewish world, and there was always an emphasis by my parents that education was the key to anything that was going to happen in my life. And so there was never a moment in my mind as I was growing up that I was going to pursue as far as I could and desired a, a meaningful education. I spent my teenage years in Miami Beach, Florida, 
at the time when it was the golden era. It was the development of all the fanciful resorts. And although we were not very wealthy, I was still able to be exposed to a pretty fancy high style of living that I observed all around me. I was lucky enough to go to UCLA my freshman year of college, which I loved. I was pursuing a degree in film. And then fortuitously, I met my ex-husband through a fix-up, and the fix-up occurred by our fathers. That's amazing. Yeah, the two of them, fortunately or unfortunately, played cards together at the Fountain Blue card room. And so the fathers did a, you know, I have a son, I have a daughter. When they come home for Christmas, we ought to get them together. And my father wrote me the only letter he ever wrote to me in college and said, you're going to come out with us. I met this, you know, wonderful young man, yada, yada. Fast forward, that that took. And as a result of my meeting, Steve, I transferred back east to George Washington University to complete my education. And I was a political science major. At the time, Steve's dad was in the bingo business. And they had a bingo in Upper Marlboro, Maryland, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C. And Steve used to commute every weekend to go down there and run the bingo business. What is the bingo business? I don't really think I know. Yeah. In those days, they had commercial bingos in a lot of states on the eastern seaboard. And a bingo operator would come in and make a deal with local business people And under the auspices of it being entertainment as opposed to being gambling per se, they were allowed to run games of bingo and give away prizes, cash prizes. And so I was able to go and work at the bingos on Sunday and earn a nice little salary that helped me throughout my week at school. And Steve and I would get to see each other on the weekends Unfortunately, his dad passed away when Steve was a senior. He had a congenitive heart defect, and we were scheduled to be married anyway. We got married. We continued to operate the bingo, but through some circumstances, which life always presents, we had met people that were going to be involved in a new hotel in Las Vegas called The Frontier, and they were looking for young people to move in and relocate to Nevada to help work in management. We organized the bingo to be run by other people, and we relocated to Nevada with our, at the time, 10-month-old daughter. We eventually wound up with the Golden Nugget, and then we expanded and built the Mirage, Treasure Island, Bellagio, Beau Rivage in Mississippi. We had a Golden Nugget in Laughlin. And then eventually, after we sold the company to Kirk Kikorian and MGM, we purchased the Old Desert Inn and created what is now Wynn and Encore, went on to China in Macau and created some pretty fabulous places that are still there and just renewed and existing and running. And today I am the still the largest individual owner of shares at Wynn. I had the um, pleasure of staying at the Wynn when I was in Las Vegas to give a charity presentation for The Life You Can Save. Your background is really interesting to me. It's very similar to my own background because I grew up in New York in a middle-class Jewish family Mm -hmm. that emphasized education. And my wife's family was also like that. They had three daughters. And I think it's interesting that your parents were 
kind of equal and sounds like in terms of wanting their daughter to get a really good education because that wasn't always the case back then. No. So I can relate to your background very well. I'd like to switch gears, if you will, and ask you a completely different type of question before we get into how you became interested in education and philanthropy, which is when you step back and look at the problems in the world today, what are, would you say are the three biggest problems that you think we as human beings face today? Well, first of all, the most existential one is the climate and conservation and environmental evolution. We're all kind of keenly aware of the jeopardy that we're in, but equally frustrated by the lack of serious focus and attention on how we handle all of this. Yes, there's a lot of news about it, but as far as what we're actually doing about it, it seems to be less. And I think for me, I look at my own behavior and I know I could do more, but I also think that maybe systemic changes are really the only way we're ever going to get where we need to get. What do you think, Elaine? Well, I think it's very sad because for the first time, I'm hearing my own daughters and, and grandchildren express concern about procreating and having children born into a generation that may be dealing with the dire consequences of the climate change. And that was never, ever a consideration for us in our lives. I mean, the things we worried about were, were equally stressful and challenging, but they were mostly, yet again, man-made and controlled like wars and right. things, you know, amongst competing civilizations. But this is the existential threat. And it is frustrating because I, I, I do believe it is it is overwhelming. And when something feels overwhelming, you almost ha have difficulty being hopeful about fixing it. And as we're observing now in the political environment that's occurring in the world, it's not lending itself to collegial approaches. And our scientists and their, that community notwithstanding, our political leaders who really do need to get engaged are kind of all over the place and, and not really focused and no real leadership except for young women like, you know, you know Greta, right. who, who, are, who are causing the alarm. Yeah, it was quite something to see her speaking at the UN and raised a lot of debate and discussion when even though she seemed extreme to people, she actually, at least from my point of view, isn't really that extreme because it is it is really yeah. a huge problem. And I'm happy that Peter Singer, relative to the life you can save, has allowed us to add climate change to our extreme poverty fight. Yeah. So we have a climate change fund now, which is really I think an acknowledgement on his part about the the existential threat. Sure. I mean, what happens is if, if I discuss with my children addressing and trying to solve some other problems, which are not lesser, but are still significant, the retort I always get is, well, mom, if we don't take care of the planet, none of that matters. So moving to other two, uh, two other problems, and I, I happen to agree with you, but not all our guests have named these this problem as the primary problem. Yeah. It's interesting. Mike Shore said that he thought that individualism, rampant individualism, was the biggest problem we face in the world. And he attributed the climate problem to that very sort of superordinate issue of people being too individualistic and not 
being willing to hook up to other people who are necessary to, to solve the problem. And he also mentioned pandemics, which also require a tremendous amount of cooperation. Well, that's a little bit above my pay grade. I, I can't. I doubt it. it. it well, it's hard <laughs> for me. It's hard for me to argue that position. You know, philosophically, we always have the debate about how much value to give to the right of individuals to have complete freedom. I mean, even in a libertarian conversation versus bonding together for the good of all. And that's a debate that's been time immemorial. I'm not sure that just because we're rephrasing it now in the 21st century that it's brand new. And and we're just more aware of it because of our capacity, you know, to have these things and instantaneous communication and access to so many individual points of view and thoughts. You know, everything is instantaneous. Yeah, the pandemic brought it home, I think, in a really concrete way for people that what somebody does somewhere else is going to have an impact on them. Absolutely. I think the pandemic is the strongest two by four that our generation has had, all things considered. And I'm I'm a baby boomer. I mean, I was born in 42 at the end of the war. And so I know that my parents lived through armed conflict and the ravages of World War II. And since that time, we've had skirmishes that have been of concern. But until we were all confined to our homes and had the inability to be out and about and free in the way that we understand freedom... It was a gut punch. It was a gut punch. And I think we're not out of that. I think that the the tidal wave is now producing whole other offshoots that are resulting from that pandemic. And we haven't experienced the full effect of it. Clearly, you know, it was an injection point where it caused an awful lot of us to stop and question for the first time in many people's lives where they were at that time in their lives and where they were going and were they happy about it and how did they feel about it and did they want to do anything about it to change it. And as a result, we've seen emerging all of these new trends, the the working from home, the being more mindful of our personal relationships, prioritizing how we spend our time, streaming content into our little nests, which keeps us from going out and socializing and developing the kind of social relationships that would tend to establish working together for common causes. And and that does scare me and worry me because I think it has kind of sensitized us to the bigger issue of of how we relate to one another in our lifetime. And so I think the effects of the pandemic are still unfolding. And and hopefully, the generations that have to deal with it will figure it out. And, And I feel sad for them because this is a big challenge. You mentioned uh, climate, and now we're talking about pandemics. Is there any other world problem or domestic problem that you would highlight as being among the most important? Well, certainly poverty is overwhelming, you know, the, the, and, and that falls under the broad umbrella of justice and equity, 
which is the thing that I has occupied all of my time, my, my non-professional time, and it's leveling the playing field and everything comes into play in that conversation. And it's overwhelming, especially I am in that 0.01% of earners and to understand and to see the data about the terrible imbalance of haves and have-nots and be aware that that is a fact of life. And then to have these conversations and discussions about, well, how do you shake it up and make it more equal in a way that's a, that's acceptable to everybody? And that's where we're all fighting and bickering about. That gets into politics. It gets into priorities of spending. It gets into philosophy about pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, no matter what your conditions are. And there are no victims in this world. We're all born so-called equal as, as mortal human beings. But those of us who've been around the block know that that's not true, that we're all born in an unequal situation. I, I'm tall and I have blue eyes and blonde hair. That advantaged me in my life, in the world that I live in. It's never lost on me that something as simple as that was something that worked to my advantage that was an unfair advantage. I've always said that I have not worked harder than perhaps the housekeepers in our hotels. I've just been blessed with circumstances that gave me a leg up. I, I had a, a two-parent family. I had an education. I was nurtured. I, I never worried about a roof over my head. And the absence of that stress allowed me to, to thrive. That's, you know, that's, that is inherently unfair and it, it plagues me and it has motivated me throughout my lifetime. But by the same token, I have colleagues who I greatly respect and admire who are extraordinary philanthropists and they sort of determine, you know, where the money is going to go to solve certain problems. So yet again, the wealthy are deciding how to make things fair, and a lot of people push back on that. And so that's a very interesting dialogue, and, and it occurred with Mackenzie Scott. I mean, this extraordinary, marvelous woman who finds herself suddenly with the remarkable amount of, of resources to give back decides to do it, and then people start to criticize her for not being more transparent and for not, you know, having a system that we can all look at and examine and approve of. And so, I mean, those are very esoteric kind of conversations. So the, the issue of poverty, getting back to your question, from the issue of poverty uh, arises all the other significant issues like health care, which is a major, major problem. As the older we live, the tougher it is for people to deal with the serious health problems that come from aging and affordability. Education, for sure. Conversations around college admission now and meritocracy versus affirmative action. And so, you know, all that stuff is very provocative in terms of conversation. 
But I think certainly the root of all of it is poverty and the inability for people to have equal access to things that can help them improve their lives. Greetings. We all know that climate change is a global crisis that demands our action, not just our attention. I'm Katie Stanford, head of research at The Life You Can Save. While climate change affects all of us, it's the vulnerable in developing nations who suffer the most. We've created a Tackle Climate Change Cause Fund to invest in nonprofits ensuring a cleaner future. Your support drives policy and structural change. We understand the urgency of this challenge, and we hope you'll join us. Visit thelifeyoucansave.org and contribute to the Tackle Climate Change Cause Fund today. Together, we can create a more sustainable future. It was interesting to me. I was interviewing. We, we have a board at The Life You Can Save. It's only three people, Peter Singer, myself, and a woman named Neela Saldana, who uh, is a marketing person. Actually, she's at Yale now. But she was telling me when she was interviewed, when she first came to the United States from India, she grew up in a middle-class family in India. So she felt like she was not among the really poor people in India. She was among the probably at that time 150 million people who had access to some significant resources, although she wasn't rich. But she told me when she came to America the first time, the thing that really struck her was that you could turn on your water faucet and get clean water. She said even as a middle-class Indian, she'd never had that experience before. They always had to boil their water. And she said she came to America and she realized that. And then I think, oh my gosh, people living in severe poverty, of course, don't have access to water unless the woman in the house usually walks like three or four kilometers or more each way to get the water. And we, yeah, we are so privileged. And I think maybe in some sense, this sounds odd to say, the biggest privilege I have in my life at this point is be able to do something about a little bit about poverty by working at The Life You Can Save. Tell me a little bit about how these ideas about the world's problems have affected your own philanthropy, Elaine. Well, as I mentioned, although it's been interpreted as mostly education directed, either from the beginnings of my involvement, which were scholarship programs that we funded from our company, to the greater passion that I've had for the last many decades, which is an organization called Communities in Schools, which is directed to children at hope, I call them, who lack services that can at least get them to the school's front door without being behind already. Things that are as simple as your basic needs, like health care and food and clothing and eyeglasses and dental care. You know, you can't have a kid concentrate on algebra when the parents are fighting or there's only one parent that's working two jobs. And so for me, it's always been an attempt to try and be mindful of those children and families and offer them access to resources that already exist in communities that they just can't get to because they don't have transportation or nobody is there in their lives to intervene and counsel and create and connect. And so the work that we do at Communities and Schools is all around that. It's leveraging 
all of the services that do exist to address these individual barriers and delivering them to the child in a school setting where you have access to them and you work in concert with teachers and educators who are all treating the child holistically. And, you know, the term holistic, when it first came out, nobody understood what that meant. And now all of us are right there talking about social and emotional health and mental health, especially. So my whole life, my whole adult life has been geared toward doing things primarily to address that population. And I finally, in the last year through the pandemic, when we had one of our board meetings, I said, listen, we're presenting ourselves to the world as an education-related activity and program. I said, that's not what we are. And our founder, Bill Milliken, who, bless his heart, is still alive, always considered this a justice issue. I said, we are fighting against injustice and we are fighting for equality. And I think we need to reframe who we are. Now, we may do it through traditional educational environments, and it affects educators and kids in schools, but what we are doing is trying to be more fair and equitable in how young people and families can access resources. So it sounds like the education was really more that the schools were the point at which you could get to children and start to coordinate all these various resources from the community in a place where children always go, even if they go ill-equipped to deal with being in school. Is that right? Is that what it was? Yes, that's correct. And the interesting thing is, though, I never would have learned about all of this if I hadn't in the beginning gone for more kind of traditional sounding uh, attempts like scholarships. You know, you think, well, we'll give some kids scholarships who would never have been able to go to college or go to the college of their choices. And how great is that? But part of that meant developing a process where we had to evaluate and judge kids against one another to give out the, the dollars. So that took me into the schools. And then I got a chance to see the various high schools, and I got a chance to see how a high school in one neighborhood was far superior to a public high school in another neighborhood. I got to understand from teachers' writings in in letters of recommendation how some teachers were superb and other teachers did not quite measure up so well. And so I started to get an, an understanding and an inkling about a disparity in the quality that certain kids were getting in public high schools. And then I also became aware of the the post-secondary education system that you might help kids graduate, but then they get into college and so many of them fall out of college because they no longer have the supports they had in high school that helped them navigate the terrain that was tough in high school. And that doesn't go away. You know, you can help a kid make it out of high school and get a scholarship to a good school. Now they're there. They don't have the right clothes. They don't have the right social structure or system. They don't have family. They have guidance counselors and people may be available to them, but they're shy and intimidated in reaching out. So you can see that, you know, this is not just an isolated pieces of of a problem. It is a very long chain of events. 
And that that kind of broadened. And then I got more involved in policymaking because I became president of the State Board of Education in Nevada. Let me interrupt you one second. Was most of this activity in in and around Las Vegas or was it more of a national focus? It started in Las Vegas, but when I was looking for a dropout prevention program, I started to do my research. And that's when I first met Bill Milliken and the program that he had, which was called Cities in Schools. And then it changed. And then I was invited to join the national board because of my passion and also because he could see that I was starting to get it. So then I I was invited to join the national board, which I did once Bellagio opened. I had been too preoccupied with, with business at that point to really commit to the national program. So that's what happened. Then I started to explain that when I became president of the state board of education, It also gave me humility and understanding how schools and school systems are so burdened with the organizational challenges of education, getting teachers, dealing with curriculum, dealing with parents and their feelings about curriculum, dealing with facilities and investments and growth and how a city was building a new school every month. You know, how do you get the funding for that? So, you know, my world of education on became 360. I could understand it internally and externally, which I thought was very helpful for me in being able to navigate everything I was doing. It it gave me a much broader understanding, appreciation, and humility about you don't know it all. You never know it all. And the more you learn, you learn how much you don't know. Yeah, I think that's part. Of, there's a famous quotation from Mark Twain about the older he got, the smarter he, he realized his father was, meaning he was not so smart. But I think one of the things that's been amazing to me is to find out how little I actually know. I think because there's one area in my life, which is the treatment of two specific anxiety disorders agoraphobia and obsessive compulsive disorder, where I actually consider myself to be an expert. When I compare myself in that level of knowledge to everything else I do or talk about, I realize I actually don't know that much because it, one of the nice things about knowing one thing, however small it is, is it allows you, for better or worse, to realize how little you know about all these other areas. It's been pretty humbling for me as I get older. It's frustrating too, isn't it? Because you yeah. know, you don't have enough time left <laughs> to fill in no. the blanks. <laughs> and one of the things I like working about working at The Life You Can Save is we do have people at The Life You Can Save that can curate really great charities and really be sure that they're good. And I'm not re- they're not relying on me. They have the expertise. My job is to get people to understand what they do. So it is humbling and I'm not going to get any smarter as I get older, I don't think, but maybe a little wiser, I hope. I think you'll do both. I think you can do both. Like you, I was raised in a family that really focused on poverty. It really started with the Holocaust in a way, because I was raised in a family that talked about genocide and how people should be treated. And even though both my parents had severe psychological problems, I feel like they were able to transmit some really good core values to me which was their gift. They really weren't wonderful parents, but they were wonderful at sharing some values that I was able to actualize eventually. But a lot of my life I spent in business where I was really more focused on 
earning a living for myself and my family, sure. particularly my family. So I've had this opportunity late in life. Yeah. The, the first order of business, I think, you know, for individuals when they are in the position to do it without terrible barriers is to become self-sufficient and self-reliant so that we are not a burden to others. You know, that to me has always been, and, and I developed that notion very young and I don't know why, but I was asked in high school by, by a, a wonderful teacher who presented to the class you know, the, the whole Kennedy thing, ask not what you can do for your country, but or what you can do for yourself, what you can do for your country. And he said, what would you do? And while all the other kids were saying, oh, I'll go volunteer at the hospital, I'll, you know, be a candy striper. And I said, um, I think what I would do is try to set a good example. I, I would try to just be a self-reliant, self-sufficient person that nobody has to worry about except me, of course, and my immediate family, but I don't want to be a burden. And if I can be that, then others could be encouraged that they could be that too. Do you think that at that time you were developing these ideas, feminism had been sort of come into being as an important idea? It historically had, I mean, for centuries, but there weren't as many women who were actively modeling or being aware of modeling, being a woman who can raise children, a woman who can be a business person, a woman who could be a philanthropist. Did you come to see yourself in any way as a model for other women? I think I would describe that period of time as being on the cusp of women's lib. And my own mother was a peculiar example. She was the quintessential nurturing, subservient mother-wife figure but she always, on the side, had a little business going. It was couched as a hobby, but she made money doing it. And when I saw her engaged, it gave her self-confidence. It gave her joy. It gave her independence. It gave her a reason why she didn't have to account for every dollar she spent on things that she used her own money for when she'd have to be accountable to my dad for everything else. And so I got a glimmer of what it felt like through observing her to have some voice and independence, but her habits and her demeanor and her whole frame of reference was what I identified more strongly with. So that my pattern in getting married, especially at a very early age, very much imitated and mimicked her. And did that change during your lifetime? Or did oh, it absolutely changed. Yeah, yeah, for sure it changed. Well, you're. It's. I feel like I could keep this going for an awfully long time, but I don't. I mean, maybe we'll uh, get a chance to chat more at other times. But I would like to ask you two more questions. One: Do you have any projects? on the horizon that you see yourself getting more involved in, or is it continuing to do what you've done? Well, certainly it's continuing to do what I've done. The communities and schools effort is probably at its apotheosis. And when you talk about convincing people to invest in you within the last year and three months, we've had extraordinary financial support from Mackenzie Scott and the Balmer Group. So our, our organization secured almost a third of a billion dollars of new money 
within this period of time. And if you want to talk about an endorsement, I mean, it, it's given us sort of the kind of turbocharge that is our ultimate goal, which is to be in every Title I school in America. So we've created a moonshot for communities and schools that I've sort of launched knowing that a succession has to happen in my case and the next generation will continue the work there. But to know that we've reached that benchmark and have set the next true benchmark is very gratifying. In terms of LACMA, the LA County Museum of Art, which really didn't touch upon much, we have a new building that's going up that people scorned and mocked and thought would never happen. And we're 60% done and we're this shy of the ultimate fundraising. I'm hoping that I'm still alive to see the doors open and we're expecting that to be in about a year and a half. But in Las Vegas, we do not currently have an art museum. And for many years, there have been multiple attempts by friends of mine, other organizations. But I think that Las Vegas now, to be a fully formed real American city, especially with the population we have, must have an art museum. And we've got stadiums and arenas and concert halls and all the other offerings. But for the people that live here, as well as visit, we have to round it out and have that final cultural piece that I so strongly believe in. And so my last hurrah will probably be in getting an art museum finally launched and on its way to being the last piece of civic engagement that I do in, in certainly in Las Vegas, but in Nevada. I'd be shocked if it is your last arrive. Seems to me like your energy is boundless. I know it doesn't always feel that way. But I have to say, listening to you today, it's giving me inspiration that I can keep going at the life you can save for quite a bit more. And I hope that you're able to keep going for quite a bit more because there's a tremendous amount of good that you can do. And as I listen to your moonshot, and I think about the moonshot we have at the life you can save, that too is inspirational. Let me ask you the last question I ask every guest, which is, what do you think it means to live a moral life? Well, that's the hardest question that you can ask anybody, because in, in some ways, morality can be objective, but in so many other ways, it is totally subjective. You hope that you know what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is bad. There are things that come across my purview every minute of the day that I make judgments on, and I do hope that I have a strong moral compass that allows me to evaluate those situations and make the right judgments, whether they're just passive judgments or active judgments that require behavior on my part. But I think, you know, living a moral life is exactly that. It's, it's your daily challenges of how you navigate the way you conduct yourself how you affect the people in your world by setting an example and always going, what I say, going to the light, which sounds very woo-woo. But, you know, in these moments where we have so much darkness, we'll, there will always be darkness. And I, I always say to myself, acknowledge the darkness, but seek out the light. Go to where things are happening that are good, that are uplifting, that are enlightening, that make you happy, but make other people happy and fulfilled. And that's an ongoing, second-by-second second way of, of living your life. 
Well, maybe a very tough question, but I think that's a fabulous answer. And I think going to the light might be one of the reasons that you've been able to sustain the amount of energy that you have throughout your life. Because when you go to the dark, it is draining. Yeah. I've experienced both in my life. And I think that listening to you will help our listeners as well as me be inspired to go to the light because ultimately we have to do something positive in a world where it's very difficult to feel like you can. I think that's great. And that's a great place to end. So thank you for taking us to the light, Elaine, and for being here today. And I look forward to many more conversations. Thanks thank very you. much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Musings About Ourselves and Other Strangers. Subscribe and join us. Our guests have varied experiences, different points of view, and interesting ideas about what it means to live a well-balanced moral life. We hope you'll share this podcast with those close to you. We'd also like to invite you to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you use. And if you're interested in learning more about the life you can save and the charities we benefit, visit thelifeyoucansave.org slash musings.